Welcome to CCO Podcast, calling college students to serve Jesus Christ with their entire lives. So welcome. I really appreciate you all coming. And um, my name is Ellen Vaughn, and this is the first time I've been to Jubilee. Really appreciate being here. It's been excellent so far. You never know what will happen next. And um, so I live in the Washington, D.C. area. And this workshop is, is about writing as a vocation, which is something that I've been fortunate enough to be able to do over the last number of years. Uh, I grew up in the D.C. area, went to University of Richmond in Virginia, and then went to Georgetown University and got my master's in English literature. And um, I was one of those kids who just read all the time, was very nerdy in that way, and uh, wanted to be a writer when I grew up. And uh, I, when I was um, probably about 11 or 12 years old, we had a young woman living with us for the summer. My parents were very hospitable, and we always had missionaries or random people or ex-offenders or other people in our home. And so there was a young woman living there, and she was, uh, my parents were out one night, and she was reading a book out loud. And that book, as, as she's reading the, the story of it, the words really captured my imagination. And I thought, oh my gosh, these are, are things that I, that I get. I know this to be true, even though I couldn't have articulated these things myself. And the book was The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. And if you're a fan of Lewis, you know that that sense of of recognition that he creates with words on the page, the sense that that's almost like a, a magical transaction between the reader and the author. And so from that point onward, like many over the years, I, I really thought, oh, I, I want to be a writer. I'd love to be like a C.S. Lewis. Now, that's a lofty goal that I will never attain, but God was most gracious to me. And um, after I got out of graduate school, I ended up working with a prison ministry called Prison Fellowship, if you're familiar with that. And a guy named Chuck Colson became my mentor. And I began working with him on a number of his books and writing projects. And that parlayed for me into uh, relationships with publishers and uh, then a, a writing vocation of my own over the years. So I've written about um, 24, 25 books, I think. And um, so I have them here just so, you know, you would know that that was true. And um, so what I want to do is um, first just tell you a little bit about what I'm writing right now because my life is really fascinating and you want to know that. And um, then I want to draw out some sort of big picture fundamental truths about, about writing as an art, writing as vocation, okay, that match with the themes that we've been discussing so far in this conference. And then I want to look in the, the second half at some practical tools about strengthening uh, writing as a craft, okay? And so this project that I'm working on now is uh, it's the authorized biography of Elizabeth Elliot. And how many of you know who Elizabeth Elliot is? So, yay. Um, People my age, most of us know of her because she was really one of the um, kind of fundamental shaping 
women's voices in the evangelicalism in the second half of the 20th century. And uh, so her story, briefly, is that she, um, in the middle part of the last century, was a missionary in Ecuador with her husband, and they worked with four other couples, so five um, missionary couples. And they really had this sense from God uh, urging them to go to an indigenous people group who had never heard the name of Jesus. And uh, so the, the five missionary men uh, established contact with this extremely violent tribe who had a reputation of spearing to death anyone who came in their territory. And they actually developed sort of uh, a sense of friendly overtures. And so it seemed like the time was ripe after much prayer, to go into the tribe. The five men went in, and they were all speared to death. And then in the aftermath of that very bloody tragedy, Elizabeth Elliot still felt that sense of, God, what, what do you want me to do in this horror of having lost her husband? And she sensed that if, if her husband, Jim Elliot, had loved this, this unreached people group so much to die that she, too, would do the same. And so, through God's intervention, she took her toddler daughter and went and lived among the tribal people who had killed her husband and the others. And it was through her incarnation, if you will, her example of, of forgiveness, the, the tribe, many of them, embraced the name of Christ and stopped killing each other and other people. So, the great thing about writing is that uh, you have the opportunity, right, to, to uh, research the stories you're writing. So last summer I went down to Ecuador and to the, the tribal area where these, these five young men about the age of, of you all had met their deaths in the, the Amazon rainforest of Ecuador. And here we have a young Elizabeth Elliot back in the day uh, entering, <laughs> going into the tribal area with her young daughter, And um, again, she became in her older years a well-loved writer. She wrote about 25 books, a speaker around the world, and really created a legacy of wisdom that came out of her years of of suffering and and of seeing what God was doing in the jungles of Ecuador. So uh, as you fly in, and how many of you have been to the, the rainforest in Ecuador or... Um, other places. The only way to access the inner jungle is in very small planes. And as you fly over the, the Amazon jungle, you see the, the rivers kind of winding through like a snake. And then it just looks like broccoli everywhere, broccoli. And so then um, you land on an air strip. You know, it was all mud. And I'm not the greatest flyer anyway. So my life was clearly going to end right about at that moment, but it did not. So I could come and be with you today. And then we trekked for a couple of hours through the jungle wearing rubber boots this high because of snakes and everything else. And then got in these dugout canoes and we were pulled deep, deep into the the jungle to where we would be staying. And this is with the same indigenous tribe that killed the missionaries all these years later. Today they are brothers and sisters in Christ. And so they welcomed me and the people I was with, and the accommodations were hammocks in which you slept kind of 
you had to wrap yourself in the hammock, almost like a burrito kind of, and uh, there were vampire bats that would chew on your head because there are all these capillaries in your head. If um, So you had to have a hat on and all your clothes around you and wrap up in the burrito in the night and take care not to fall out into the mud. But in the middle of the night, because we were all told we had to stay hydrated, you could just you know easily get dehydrated and die in the jungle. And so you, you drink a lot, and then you're like, oh, no. In the middle of the night, I have to get out of my burrito hammock and... I must go to the outhouse. <laughs> this was the most beautiful outhouse in, in the Amazon jungle. But as you stepped into it at night, you've got your headlamp on because there's no electricity. And um, you had to be careful because there easily could be snakes that are coiled around the place that you were interested in using. Uh, so our hosts, the tribe is called the Waodani. The Waodani, this is, um, he had gone out and, and shot our dinner there, which is a large pig. And then the next day, the hunter, the victorious hunter, came back from the woods with a monkey he had killed with a blow dart. And so this monkey was dinner, and I, I became a vegetarian for the week, I'm telling you. But um, he was not happy about being dead, and a serious underbite. And uh, so there I'm, I'm channeling my inner warrior of... of um, you know, living as uh, the tribe used to live back in the day, okay? Um, another night, we had a rodent of unusual size. Uh, and you can see, again, why one would be driven to become a, a vegan. But it was paradise. It was a glorious, beautiful place. Uh, and as you come into the jungle, you are welcomed by the, by the tribe, um, I tend to be a suburban woman who wears a fair amount of makeup, so I was really pleased when I was welcomed and they uh, adorned me with their tribal welcome. And so, and the bad thing about that dye is it didn't come off for about a week, you know, <laughs> but fool for Christ, you know. And um, so now, um, one, two, no, three, three of the warriors who killed the missionaries so many decades ago are still living. And uh, we don't know how old they are, but this guy, Minkai, is one who killed the, the missionaries. And um, in, translated from his language, what he said is, we acted badly, badly until the missionaries brought us God's carvings, the Bible. Then seeing his carvings and following his good trail, now we live happily and at peace. And... In being with this guy, um, his personality, his love for Jesus, the fact that he is a brother just bubbled out of him. You know, that, that instant connection that you have with people of God wherever you are. And um, for me, being with him, this is a story that I had heard all my life about this guy and the others killing Jim Elliott and his fellow missionaries. And to sit with him as he was sharpening and making this spear for me, you know? And it was one of those times where you almost go into, like, time travel because he had a, a sharp machete, and uh, he's, he's sharpening the wood. It's ironwood. It's extremely hard. And in that moment of sitting with him, now a brother in Christ, as he's sharpening the spear, and I think it, it was like time travel back to that day so many years ago, 
when he and the others were sharpening the spears to go and slaughter the missionaries. And just the mystery of how God works in human time, how he uses even the most improbable situations to work his will in ways that that we'll never figure out on this side of eternity. But it was a profound moment for me. Uh, Also, as part of my writing life, my favorite thing has been uh, the opportunity to sit with a translator and to, to interview sisters and brothers who have come to know the story of Jesus and embrace him for themselves. And sitting by the firelight, getting the story. And so for me, the writing life has been all about uh, telling the story. And we'll come back to that in just a minute. Now, during my time with the Waodani people, uh, they have a word in their language, which is waponi, okay? And uh, what it means is, I see it well, okay? So if you really like something, you say, waponi. And if you love something, you stress it and you say, waponi, okay? And I end with that because it's, it's really an emblem for me of what the craft of writing is all about. Because it is imperative for those of us who are in this vocation of writing to, to see it well. Uh, and here, just echoing from, from Scripture, I love what Paul says in the beginning of Ephesians. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be opened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you and the riches of his glorious inheritance and the power in Jesus. But for the writer... Our prayer is that the eyes of our hearts be open so we can truly see and that we can write what is true. And the challenge there is dual. We don't have time to go into this, but we see what is visible, okay? So we see what does it really look like? What does it feel like? What does it smell like? What is the, the sound? We see that well, and the best writing brings that so the reader experiences those concrete, sensual details, but also to see what is invisible, that the eyes of our hearts be opened and we tell the story of what God is doing in the universe today, sometimes the most profound parts of which are invisible. Not more that we could say about that. But um, in terms of the, the big story, the emphasis this weekend, creation, fall, redemption, restoration... That is the meta-narrative of the scriptures. That is the big story of what God is doing in his creation for his own glory, for his own pleasure, the creator of all things. And so how do we participate in that big story? And here is where I feel, for the writer, the way that we participate, if you're called to the vocation of writing, and I'll get back to that a little bit more later in practical ways, um, we are, are called to, to tell the truth. Writing is about telling the truth. And I don't mean preaching didactically. I mean evoking through the power of words those things that, are, that hit at the gut, that are the essential truths of what unite us as human beings and that are identifiable as common threads in our our human story. 
And all good writers do this. A pagan writer who does not avow the existence of God can tell the truth, can write words of truth because of common grace. You all are familiar with with common grace, which is God's unmerited favor that he pours out on everyone in terms of the air we breathe, the things we enjoy, the fact that the planet doesn't spin out of the solar system. That is common grace. And so the grace of being able to tell the truth is enjoyed by many good secular writers. But if, if we're followers of Jesus, we also have the wonderful gift of special grace, that God has called us and given us the gift of repentance and that we can know God and that he has filled us with his Holy Spirit. And so we would be remiss if we didn't focus on a big chunk of scripture right now that shows how the Holy Spirit is the one who gives creative gifts to God's people. And you're probably familiar with this passage. We needn't turn to it right now because it's, it's very long. But um, I want to talk about Bezalel. Okay, so who knows Bezalel? Yay for you. All right. So um, at any rate, Old Testament, Book of Exodus, in about chapter 35 and following, uh, is the story of, of God's people. Moses has given, been given by God instructions about the building up of the tabernacle, okay? A place where God would dwell among his people. And think of it like, like constructing a beautiful cathedral. This is, and Moses has been given very specific instructions about here's how you're going to make it, all right? This beautiful work of art to the glory of God. And uh, so God calls, he says, let every skilled craftsman among you come, Whoever's of a generous heart, bring your jewels and your gold and your earrings and your, your gifts. Bring your goat's hair. Bring everything. And we will amass it all together and we will make this beautiful created thing to the glory of God. And the scripture says, and they came, everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him. And they brought contributions to the Lord. Then, here's where Bezalel comes in. Moses said to all the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And the Lord has filled Bezalel with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, okay, to in the gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones, in carving wood, for work in every skilled craft. And then the scriptures go on. But what God did there is he raised up a guy who was actually a very young man at the time, Bezalel, and a couple of companions with him who are also named in the scriptures. And he, through the spirit of God, filled them, giving them the the, um, unction, if you will, to do beautiful artistic things to the glory of God. And uh, uh, those sections of scripture in Exodus 36, everyone whose heart stirred him to come and do the work. And it talks here about how Bezalel worked in hammered gold and silver and blue and purple and scarlet and turquoise and sapphire and diamonds. It's very, 
evocative of, of the beautiful created things brought together and used by the skill of the artist for glory to God. And the parallel for anyone in creative work, whatever it is you make, whether you're uh, designing shoes or you're writing books or you are doing business, for whatever it is we create, we do so to the glory of God, and it is good, as has been said over and over in the big sessions. We are made in the glory of God, in the image of God. And when we, we do the things that he has created us to do to his glory, we bring him glory. So uh, the other part I love at the end of this section in Exodus is um, where it ends. It's the people all come together, Bezalel and his buddies, they all do their thing. They build up the tabernacle. They build the cathedral, if you will. And Moses says, he examined all the work, and behold, they had done it. I love that in scripture. It's like that feeling when you actually finish something, you started to, behold, she has done it. You know, I feel that way every time I write a laundry list or something. Um, anyway, so think of that the next time you complete something. Behold, you have done it. So... Another important point about Bezalel is he was given capacity, okay? But he had to develop his craft. And sometimes, no one in this room, but sometimes you'll run into people who feel that they uh, could be great writers simply because of inspiration. And writing like any other craft demands 10,000 hours of, of, of hard, hard work. It demands the learning, the refining of the craft, just as Bezalel had to learn the refining of the craft that he was doing. So uh, let me talk just a minute about some of the characteristics of the artist, or in our case, of the writer. Uh, I've boiled down just a few things that I think are indicative of how God um, uh, creates people that he has called to the vocation of writing. And the first is curiosity, okay? And uh, uh, I looked at a, a quote by, uh, about the Beatles, okay? Paul McCartney said, um, we were successful because we were curious guys. I like that. Uh, within art, curiosity is, is the key, one of the key things. Of how does that work? How did you decide to do the things you did? Who are you? How did God make you? The, the question asking. Um, Sebastian Younger, I don't know if you've read any of his books like War or The Perfect Sto- Storm. or I think he's a, he's a great uh, uh, nonfiction writer. You must have an enormous appetite for humanity and for life and for the world. You really have to feel like you cannot fill yourself up enough with this amazing place we live in. If you have that, pe- that feeling, like sincerely have it, you'll do okay. That curiosity, that wonder, that delight. And here, uh, a great quote from Lewis in one of his books, An Experiment in Criticism. He says, uh, He's talking about imagination in childhood and curiosity. He says, who wouldn't keep, if he could, that tireless curiosity, that intensity of imagination, that facility of suspending disbelief, that unspoiled appetite, that readiness to wonder, to pity, to admire? So curiosity. 
The other thing that I like about curiosity is it implies a certain humility, okay? If you're curious, you know you don't know everything. I think the most boring people are those who, who aren't curious. They're the people I steer away from at, at cocktail parties because they, it is the people who are engaged and have enough humility to know that they don't know everything who are attractive, who have a certain uh, charisma to them. And for me, over the years, what I have loved the most in my writing life, like some of those uh, interviews you saw on screen, even though those were being interpreted, uh, is, is coming to another person. And you have to come from a position of humility. I don't know your story. Tell it to me. And you have to come without preconceived notions. Sometimes our, our default can be, oh, I know how the rest of this goes. And in thousands of interviews over the years, we never know how the rest of it goes. People's stories are endlessly surprising. And as we explore their stories with an attitude of humility, tell me what I don't know, um, we find often that the biases that we may have had are absolutely wrong. That's another story. So... Uh, And I think implied curiosity begets humility, and out of humility really comes a strong sense of love. I mean, certainly as followers of Jesus, it's only as his spirit fills us that we can love anybody. But again, there is a sense of the, the, uh, in the writing life, in the curiosity, the love for the wild stuff God has created, and the love for the wild people he has made, each one unique. Those are aspects of the writer. Uh, One more quote from Lewis. Write about what really interests you, whether it's real things or imaginary things and nothing else. Here's a great point. Lewis says, this means if you're interested only in writing, you'll never be a writer because you have nothing to write about. The writing itself is the vehicle for truth. It's not a love of writing that draws the writer to his or her craft. It is a love of the truth, and then through the vehicle, giving, expressing that truth. So, excuse me, yes? Uh, This is just a question. So in a sense, it's like not being in love of um, like just writing itself, but more so of what you are writing about, like what is like, kind of sense, like, what is your truth, or what is the truth that you're trying to portray to Right, right, right. And, um, the question is, so you're loving what it is you're writing about, not the process itself. It's like there's a great um, section in Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, where he talks about an artist who has lost his way, because the artist used to love light, used to love the play of light on the water, say, and, and they were painting because they loved what they were expressing. And over the years, that corrupted to just a love of paint itself. It would be the same with the writer. We, we write, we're trying to evoke the truth of what we're writing about, but if we get all sort of uh, caught up in our wordplay or our own cleverness or the, the structure itself, we lose both the truth and the art itself. If the writer is curious with the different derivatives that come from that, as I said earlier, the writer also has to have a a capacity to see. And um, I love if you go back in the Old Testament and you look at um, the Spirit of God came to 
Jeremiah or Amos or whatever Old Testament prophet, one of the first questions is always, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I think for me, again, with the Waponi, you know, I see it well. It It has been sort of a life question. What is it I'm really seeing right now? And um, in writing about Elizabeth Elliot, uh, she was a very um, discerning writer herself. And part of that, interestingly, came from her training as a child. Her family had six kids. The dad was a bird watcher and also a publisher. But, um, and so he had trained himself to, to see with great detail to note movement in the trees, to, to hear the call of various birds. And so he trained his six kids to be observant. And that is a transferable skill. I think it's very important, especially in our day, where people are so focused on what's here, they may not be aware of everything that's around them. So when Elizabeth Elliot was a, a young girl, they would have someone for dinner, and when the person left, the dad would say, okay, so uh, what color socks was Mr. Um, Gillipuddy wearing? And that sounds kind of creepy, but what it did is it sort of trained the kids to be observant. He would say, what, what, um, what was uh, his wife, what did she talk about? You know, and it trained them to hear. So I think there are things we can do to train ourselves to kind of break the automatic and to truly see, to notice other people. Because as you all know, the best writing, it notes uh, concrete sensory detail, okay? And so you can't write with that specificity if you don't see it, if you don't see well. If you just see in a blur, your writing will be a blur, and no one wants to read a blur. I really like uh, Anne Lamott's book on writing. You all are probably familiar with it, Bird by Bird. Do you know this book? Yes. um, And um, she has a a great uh, quote here about paying attention. I think this is how we're supposed to be in the world, present and in awe. There is ecstasy in paying attention, openness to the world, where you see in everything the essence of holiness a sign that God is implicit in all of creation, seeing the world sacramentally. There's a lot in that quote that we could unpack, but certainly the point, make sure you are training yourself to see. And here's where, again, Elizabeth Elliot makes a great point. As as a missionary, sometimes she thought, what is a missionary anyway? That word isn't used in the scripture. Uh, But the word witness is often used in the scripture. And we often think of it as witnessing, evangelizing. But she focused much more on being a witness, which in fact is, is, is very biblical. And what is a witness? A witness is someone who sees something. So again, our lives are not going to demonstrate the reality of who Jesus is in the presence of the Holy Spirit if we have not seen him ourselves. And a reflection of that in our writing lives, it's not going to reflect truth unless we have really seen what it is we're writing about and we know what we're saying. We need to be witnesses to see well. Another aspect of uh, of the writer, and (laughs) this is a really unpopular one, is a willingness to suffer. Okay? So come to this vocation and you'll be miserable. Come. Everyone, come. 
Uh, so, but there, there's a profound truth in the midst of this, okay? Um, you all have heard that quote. It's attributed sometimes to Hemingway. I don't think he really said it, but, uh, oh, yeah, writing is easy. You just open your veins and bleed onto the page, right? Anyone can do it. But uh, I like this idea. This is from Oswald Chambers, who, who uh, did the devotional, My Utmost for His Highest, and uh, it, it really captures the notion of struggling. A writer is not someone who's just sitting and waiting for inspiration as if the Holy Spirit will dictate each beautiful word, you know. It is, it is a struggle to, to see, to discern the truth, and to articulate it in a way that um, the reader says, yeah, I see it, I feel it. Oswald Chambers says, if you can't express yourself on a subject, struggle until you can. If you don't, someone will be the poorer all the days of his life. Struggle to re-express some truth of God to yourself, and God will use that expression for someone else. There's a transaction going on here. Uh, Chambers says, If you say, I'm not going to struggle to express this thing, I'm just going to borrow what I say or kind of go on automatic pilot, it will not be of any use to you or to anyone else. Make it a practice to provoke your own mind to think out those things that you accept easily. Sometimes we can think we know something, but if we were forced to articulate it, it might come out kind of diluted. Force yourself to think about the positions that you accept. Our position is not ours until we make it so by suffering. And then I love this part of the quote. The author who benefits you the most is not the one who tells you something you didn't know, but the one who gives expression to the truth that has been struggling for utterance inside of you. So there is a certain sense, and I experience, since, you know, I'm a professional writer, every day I go to my desk and I sit there, and do I feel inspiration? No. There are days that I, and it, it really creates a certain eroticism and misery, but on the other hand, I will say that uh, Elizabeth Elliot, again, she has a great quote about this. Her husband was a, a star wrestler at Wheaton College, and um, he said, you know, Before a match, I just dread going into it. During the match, I'm in agony. And afterwards, I'm exhausted. But yeah, yeah, I like wrestling. And the same is true of writing. You know, I go to my desk, like, dreading, you know, doing it. I'm in agony while I'm trying to get it right. Afterwards, I'm exhausted. But yes, I love writing. Okay? So if you get that, you probably have the heart of a writer. Okay. Um, next important point, if we're all willing to struggle and wrestle, also to see ourselves as stewards, okay? For, for writers who are followers of Jesus, this is not about us. We have been given a gift. We have, are to steward skills that are to be used for the glory of God and to bring him pleasure. And... Another thing about being a steward is, if you look in the New Testament, it implies a certain multiplication. And so as we are faithful to what God has given us, and as we strive to to serve him with excellence and humility, 
he will multiply those efforts, okay? So uh, that is, is something that for me, in the midst of the writing life, as solitary as it may feel sometimes, I know, oh, Lord, I'm an idiot, but I'm your idiot. And there is a great, a great pleasure in this is, it will never be perfect. It is for your use. Take it and use it for your glory. Great freedom in that. And everything in our culture today that is about success and numbers and, and likes and followers and all of that mitigates against us having peace in whatever vocation we do choose. But that's where it is radical to be a follower of Jesus because our peace is not dependent on our numbers, but in fact on whose we are and the fact that we're being faithful to him. Something to think about. Okay, so I'm going to switch gears now to a few practical um, things to consider. All right? Is there anything that you wanted to say from this first part of our... Any questions or anything? Okay, good. So... um, These are tools that you will need for the craft, okay? And take it from me. I'm a grandmother who has gone before you blazing the trail. You'll save yourself some time if you follow this advice. Okay, so to be a writer, it is essential that you have a spinning chair, okay? (laughs) Write that down, the spinning chair. And so what that is, you see, and this is why it's hard to write in a Starbucks or somewhere because they don't have spinning chairs, I don't think. So anyway, the spinning chair. So what you do is you approach your desk each morning as you're going to sit down and and get to work, and you have the spinning office chair, which is what I have, and so I can't really illustrate it right now, but you get it going, get it going, you know, around, 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 and when it stops, then you just start writing, okay? Okay? You are not pondering, thinking, what is the perfect sentence that would change the universe today? No. Spin, stop, write, okay? Then... The second principle that you'll want to write down in your list is the mustard principle. Okay, so when you have spun in your chair and you overcome inertia by getting stuff onto the page, what is going to happen is the same thing that happens with mustard if you put it on the hamburger, okay? So when you first pour out your mustard, what comes out? Watery stuff, right. And so this is precisely the point, which is that when we spin in our chair and get going, what's going to come out? First few pages, first few paragraphs, who knows what? What's going to come out is watery stuff, all right? And just let it flow because after a while, once you've spun and you're getting going and it's moving then, then you'll start getting the flow of mustard, okay? You with me? Yeah, yeah, okay. Those are the main takeaways. You'll probably, if you want to go now, you can't. No. So, and here, you know, I can't say (laughs) enough about, uh, and I'm sure you all are too wise for this, but some people who are are young and foolish, uh, again, think of writing as a matter of inspiration. Like, I have to wait until, you know, something really hits me. or I. And the fact is, if you're writing for a vocation and or if you want to become an excellent writer, writing is a discipline. You do not wait for inspiration. You get started at the same time every day. You find your sweet spot of when it is your most creative, and you set a regimen, and you do it like you are digging ditches. Uh, Stephen King 
Um, have you seen his book on writing called On Writing? So Stephen King, you know, you think of him as the horror guy, but he has some great insights about writing. And uh, he has great di- dialogue, great characterization. And so not my favorite genre, but I find this book on writing, it is excellent, like Anne Lamott's. So uh, he's, uh, here's how he says, and he's written, you know, I mean, how many books over the years? Fifty of varying degrees of um, excellence, but that's okay. So um, he says, he gets up, he eats breakfast, he walks three and a half miles, he goes to his office, and he says, the last page that I'm happy with is, is on the screen, right? I read that, and it's like getting on a taxiway, okay? It's like a spinning chair, right? You get the momentum going. He, he ramps up like he's taking off in an airplane, goes through that, and then it takes him right back into where the work was, and that's how you get going every morning. Often what I will do is the, the evening before, whenever I finish the day before, I will leave where I'm working sometimes right in the middle of a sentence because you need that momentum. You come back the next morning, oh, and you finish the sentence, and it, it gets your mustard flowing, okay? So whatever trick works for you is very helpful to just get yourself going. Uh, here's something that I like from, from Lewis, a um, little bit off point in this section, but... Um, he talks as uh, he's speaking to Christian writers, and he said, don't feel like you need to be didactic. You're not writing a sermon. You don't need to put Christian bits in your writing. He says, the first business of a story is to be a good story. When our Lord made a wheel in the carpenter's shop, depend on it. It was first and foremost a good wheel. Don't try to bring in specifically Christian bits. If God wants you to serve him in that way you'll find it coming of its own accord. If not, a good story will give innocent pleasure, and that's a good thing, like cooking a nourishing meal. Okay? So at any rate, we have spinning chair, we have mustard, we have whatever point this one was. And um, so the other thing that is a great thing that you want to add to your list is the big dog. Okay? How many of you have dogs? I know you're in college, so... You may have dogs at home. You may have dogs living in your apartment, whatever. And so I have found it helpful over the years. I always rotate our dogs. We have a main dog, and then we have an emergency backup dog. And so when the main dog ages out and goes to dog heaven, then the emergency backup dog is still there, and then we get a new emergency backup dog, okay? (laughs) And so for me, that has been very comforting because writing is a solitary exercise, okay? I'm sitting in my office. There's a big, fluffy dog there on the floor, and he loves everything I write. He affirms me, okay? You need that. I'm just saying, get a dog. Um, Cats don't work. They don't care, okay? I'm just saying. Are there cat people here? We love you anyway, okay? Sorry. Ferrets? Um, Ferrets really don't work. All right. Now... Um, For these other things that are practical tips, all right, I have put them in the form of dog commands um, because I get stuck on the dog thing, right? Is it on the side? Thank you. Yes. So I wrote this book (laughs) a few years ago. It's in the bookstore, you know, Um, and uh, come, sit, stay. And this is a study of Matthew 11, 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, rest for your souls. 
but it boils it down into dog commands, okay? So you need this book. But for this workshop, the rest of the thoughts are in the form of commands, all right? So after mustard, spinning chair, big dog, then sit, okay? You are sitting. And what I mean by that is that writing um, demands a certain stillness, a certain coming to rest that is pretty foreign in our culture today. You can't do it on the fly. You can't do it while you're doing other things. And you need to sit, all right? You need to sit to write. And I would submit we need to sit to do one of the best tools for good writing, and that is good reading. I love the emphasis this weekend that Byron has brought to the, the table of all these, literally the tables, of all these great books, you know? And it is through the reading, omnivorous reading of good books that your own writing will be strengthened, okay? Non-readers live just one single life. It may be a good one, but a reader can live thousands. Sometimes when the right book falls into the right pair of hands, it lights a fire that leads to others. There is something combustible for our own work that comes from reading good writing, and you've got to sit to read, okay? The next command, fetch, all right? And this has to do with curiosity uh, as, and Lazy writing, when we think, yeah, I kind of know enough about that, I'll just fudge it or whatever. Um, the best writing comes through specificity, all right? And that means you're going to need to over-research things so you can select the best details to make the best representation of the person you're writing about, the situation you're writing about, whatever it is. You need to over-inform yourself. You need to fetch details, fetch facts, overcome things that you may have thought to be true that weren't true. And if we had more time, we'd talk about the internet and how not to trust everything you find on it, but that's another story for another day, okay? And uh, I would think, again, you need to research it yourself. Don't depend on what someone else has dug up. And here, too, if you are writing something that, in, that uh, requires, you know, interviewing other people, I can't emphasize enough. That's for curiosity. And there is a, you've probably experienced that, this if you do that, but um, there's a phenomenon that takes place uh, where as you're interviewing someone, so your curiosity, sometimes you will, material will surface that the person himself, the person herself, didn't even realize was important. And uh, if we have more time, which I don't, but um, one time years ago, I was interviewing a guy who had been held hostage by uh, Islamic extremists in the Middle East. Uh, his life threatened, very dramatic story, improbable um, escape, very dramatic material. You could almost write the story without having interviewed the guy, just knowing some of the facts. But as I was interviewing him, the most beautiful jewel of what I ended up eventually writing about his story came to the surface, and I never would have even found it. He didn't recognize its importance himself. I never would have found it if I hadn't researched myself, you know, if I hadn't really spent the time, even though I could have saved time by having a shorter interview. So you got to fetch, all right? Now, another important dog command. Leave it. You all have dogs? So uh, this is telling, it's like when you tell your dog to avoid things. Leave it, 
don't go off. I know it's a dead squirrel. Don't, nope, stay on the path, all right? And uh, this is where you have got to turn off social media. You've got to put the phone away. You need to do whatever you can, practically speaking, to eliminate distractions. Just focus on the writing itself. Multitasking is a joke when it comes to the writing life, okay? So leave it. Now, the next command, similarly, drop it. Here is when the dog has the thing in his mouth already, and you need him to to let it go, all right? I find this often if I'm researching something online where I, I might need the date of a battle in World War I, and I'm, you know, I'm on the um, Internet, and then next thing I know, I'm watching trailers from the movie 1917, right? And then I'm thinking, now, why was Archduke Ferdinand assassinated? And then I'm down, you know, you can go down endless paths, like squirrel, you know, and of distraction. And so you've got to leave it, really important. And uh, you can have recurring things in your head, you know, things that you're worried about, things that you're anxious about, whatever it is. Anne Lamott, in her book, has a very interesting technique. If you've got imaginary stuff distracting you, what you do is you envision that you have a mason jar, and all those little thoughts are like mice, okay? And you have a big pair of tweezers, and you take, you catch, uh, put one mouse in the mason jar, and then the next mouse in the mason jar. And then you take all the things distracting you and put them in the jar, and then you close the lid, okay? So just remember that when you're feeling distracted. Leave it. Let's see. Um, here, too, is that with the, mus- with the spinning chair principle, you know you're going to end up with stuff in your writing that you're going to need to edit out, right? And this is where leave it is a very good command to keep in mind because we all get things in our writing where we just love that description. It was so good. Or this backstory from some character. Oh, it can't live without it. And that's where we have to be ruthless. Uh, Stephen King says, kill your darlings, kill your darlings. Even when it breaks your egocentric little scribbler's heart, kill your darlings. Uh, make sure that you leave it, you're dropping adverbs. At, this is, now we're getting down to the nitty-gritty, right? Adverbs are deaf, all right? No adverbs. Um, I'm afraid of heights, she said tear- fearfully. Like, really? Um, I hate sushi, he said emphatically. These, those, these are just like words that are there, just sort of sludgily there. Like uh, You need to cut them out, and the writing automatically grows in vigor. Get rid of adverbs. Get rid of passive voice, all right? You all know that. Passive voice is so um, popular in bureaucracy and politics and in public disinformation precisely because it erases any sense of personal responsibility. The decision was made by the committee, right? And so writing automatically becomes weak, flimsy, and just um, almost laughable with passive voice. Get rid of it, get rid of it. It's a pleasure to get rid of it, okay? And much more we could say about that. Now, another dog command, come. And here, again, as you are sitting and writing, it's a solitary uh, exercise, right? But you always have your reader in mind, 
all right? Not slavishly trying to please your reader, but keep your audience in mind because that will shape the details that you choose to include or not. And you, as the writer, you're the host. You are saying, come, let me tell you a story. Let me show you something that I have seen. And so every story has that invitation to the reader, once upon a time in a faraway land. So you are inviting the reader to come. Never forget your reader. And if you realize, oh, my gosh, I have nowhere to take the reader, come. Where are we going? Well, I don't know. Bad sign. Okay? Uh, And then uh, keeping the reader in mind, another detail that that uh, brings to the fore is that you want the reader to feel what you are describing. You don't want to make them do the work. So uh, the idea here is if you're telling us that something is terrifying, no, show why you should be terrified, okay? Don't use, there are so many descriptive words that are lazy words. Oh, it was so beautiful. It was so interesting. It was hilarious. Don't tell me these things because then the reader has to think of why you want the reader to feel without having to think, okay? So uh, another dog command is similar to all these others. Heal. You have to keep yourself on a very short leash, okay? And here Lewis says always use the plain uh, and uh, direct word over the long, vague one. Language is, is, is a rich and wonderful array of, of jewels that you can use. And make your decisions very carefully about choosing your words. Again, not lazy words, not weak words that communicate nothing concrete, but direct, clean words, all right? If you've read um, Ernest Hemingway, uh, his book, A Movable Feast, have anybody, have you read that? It's about his early writing life in Paris in the 1920s. And whether, you don't have to be a Hemingway fan to appreciate the truths in that book. He, he talks about, in getting started in writing, he, he says, you know, I would find myself trying to do some ornamental beginning, like with scroll work and something like I was introducing something. And then he said, no, I just need to figure out how do I write one true sentence? And so for me, in my writing life, I don't want to have quite the end that Hemingway came to, but I want to write one true sentence, and then another one, and then another one. And then as you get the momentum going and the mustard is flowing, then you're, you're charting a course. And uh, the book I'm doing right now, at this point, is about 110,000 words. That's a long, most books today are about 50,000 words. So it's a long book. And it is so easy to lose my way in the midst of it. And um, my son was hiking the Appalachian Trail. And I felt like, oh, my gosh, what Walker, my son, is, is doing is the same thing that I'm doing. And you just have to take, take the next step. Just do the, the, the trek for today. Write the next true sentence. It's one step at a time. Okay? So uh, the last thing that I'll say, I think, yes is uh, the last dog command, speak, all right? And this is important. You have to write for the ear, not the eye. And one of the most practical things you can do as you get to a, a later draft is to read it out loud. And 
when you do so, if it's embarrassing, there's a reason for that. And so it slows things down, but that is one of the most useful tools for you, is to see where the weak spots are and to read it out loud, because that's how the reader will experience it. So that's kind of blazing through uh, an introduction of who I am and what I've done. The big picture of the vocation of writing as it is um, put forth in the scripture for, for writers of faith that we write what is true to the glory of God. And then some of these practical ideas as dog commands.